You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We have a more broader conversation about health equity. Health inequities relate to health disparities, but health equity is now an aspirational goal whereby all people are put in a position to achieve their maximum health potential. And it's a broader conversation in the context that it isn't just racial, but the racial component is driving it. It also speaks to women because women are part of this portfolio of vulnerable populations we speak about that are at risk for being exposed to health disparities and therefore will not achieve health equity. That the status quo of racial inequity is is unacceptable. Now, we've seen this from the the murder of George Floyd, of the the recent uh, police, um, the police action on the uh, lieutenant from the U.S. Army who's pulled over for a traffic violation that um, doesn't have any substance to it afterward. And we're seeing these things brought before our eyes because of social media. Everything is now um, transparent and available. And we're seeing decades upon decades upon decades of injustice um, before our eyes. And, And many of us are saying no more. The CDC proclaims racism a public health crisis and calls for health equity. And you know what? The first time I really concentrated on the term health equity, it was with my friend and someone I'm very proud to have welcomed onto the Pharmacy Podcast Nation uh, several times, Gil Bash, the managing partner of uh, Finn Partners, which is one of the largest communications healthcare focused organizations in the uh, in the world and it's been amazing to learn more about Finn as well as Gill's his mission his it just comes from his heart and it spills out into that entire company and I've been just pleased to know him he's actually he spans this uh, patient physician provider sector and um, as someone who is uh, a global health advocate, for, for all of us, we got to welcome back. Gil, this is your fourth time on the Pharmacy Podcast, so welcome. Thank you so much, Todd, for inviting me back, and particularly to be with Dr. Aluko, because he is truly a leader in this field, to be in conversation with him and with you about something that I, I really feel um, has to be addressed. Anyone involved in health and public health has to understand that we're creating barriers to care um, racism, racism is a domino. It leads to poverty. It leads to illness. It leads to disease. It leads to death. So I'm I'm thrilled to be with Dr. Aluko today. We can explore this topic together. Welcome, Dr. Yili Aluko. You are Ernst and Young's uh, America's chief medical officer, and it is an absolute honor to welcome you to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you, Todd, and pleasure to meet you and Gil. Absolutely. You know, I've read several of the papers that have been uh, featuring much of your insights, Dr. Aluko, and you, you really have an interesting view on how the business that we are in today, the modernization of data, plays into um, the world of health disparities and racism and the uh, domino effect that it has on our entire sociological ecosystem. And I love reading about the analytics that you believe in that, that shows a lot of this information off. I want you to take an opportunity just to share with our pharmacist-focused leaders and the pharmaceutical industry at large through the Pharmacy Podcast a little bit about your passion and background in, in really being a, a beaming light right now that we all need. I'm happy to do so. So I'm a cardiologist. Uh, I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. I practiced cardiovascular medicine for about 25 years in a multi-hospital integrated regional healthcare system in the Southeast USA, 
up until about four and a half years ago. I left uh, clinical work because I had developed broader interests in the macroeconomic perspective of the health industry, more so around the, con the, the, the complex conundrum of being unable to identify value for the customer, which is the patient, and the inability to hold health systems accountable for delivering value. And by value, we talk about outcomes at the best price. Um, so that led me to seek a larger platform of influence and understanding with a desire to drive impact across larger populations beyond the bedside. And I ended up at EY four and a half years ago, and I have the opportunity to engage in conversations like we're having now about very important societal issues uh, to the likes of health disparities and health inequity and health equity. Health equity. Gil, it was you that really brought that to my heart and, and made me look into what that truly meant. And I heard it almost as a buzzword, but you brought so much more clarity, almost a spotlight on it. So the entire interview that we had with you, Gil, was about what did that mean? And you brought that up as a challenge to me, which I want to thank you for doing that because it's made me look deeper into what that means. What is health equity, Gil? Well, first of all, I, I thank you, Todd, for that question. I just want to return to Dr. Oluko for a second, if I can, because I, I think that uh, his, his move, certainly from um, a medical center um, over to being uh, a place of, of both policy connection to business, is allowing him to operationalize his vision in a broader way. You know, he's you know, Dr. Luca. I want to thank you for that. It takes a lot of courage to make the move when you've been in the practice of of interventional cardiology and medicine for so many years. Um, and, and yet, when we we take a look at um, issues that you're dealing with, that we're all passionate about, our listeners are passionate about. Um, it, it's it's really, I think, a contribution that you're making to human health throughout this country, perhaps throughout the world. So thank you for that move. Um, I, I also, Todd, to you address your question, um, health equity is, is, is really taking a look at what um, different people need at different times. And what is clear is when we take a look at the um, aspects of care, whether it be aspects of access to food or access to uh, medical centers or access to medical expertise. Um, our, our system is based right now on inequities. So I wanna start there. The, the concept of, for instance, if we start at the very core of some of the challenges we're facing as a society, and we take a look at, um, at when, when young people are going to school and we take a look at school lunches, we understand that it's not just funding a lunch or subsidizing a lunch that's provided in a primary elementary school setting or in a, in a um, sort of the PK through 12 setting where school systems provide food for young people coming in. We're, we're actually doing more than, or, or uh, we're doing more than just providing food. We're actually educating those young people of what is healthy food. And, and so at the very beginning of the system, what we do is we create inequities. So a child gets a base meal for what they can provide unless they're provided under some sort of special health programming from the state or the county or CHIP, a federal policy. They, they get a base meal. Generally that base meal is limited in its basic nutrition and then young people from their families add on food. Their, their parents give them money. And that automatically in that structure at the very early stages of life actually creates inequity. And so we wonder why certain populations are facing heart disease or diabetes. At the core of these inequities comes conception. And, um, and, and Dr. Yuluko, I'm a former chair of the American Heart Association for the Northeast region. I was involved for 26 years in the American Heart Association. We probably passed each other at scientific sessions more than a dozen times. And now we have the opportunity, thanks to Todd, to meet each other. But um, I'll, I'll bring up an interesting question when we look at health inequities. I was trained uh, in health policy that 
uh, people of color, Black Americans, are predisposed to hypertension. And Dr. Luca, you probably remember that language as well. Absolutely. What does that mean to be predisposed to something? You know, it, it's funny, I have to acknowledge, and Dr. Luca, I'd like your take on that. Is it, is it genetic? Is it environmental? Well, it, it's actually largely environmental, I think. Dr. Luca, what do you think about that basic aspect? So fundamentally, thanks for that question, but fundamentally, let me just say that there's been a pervasive myth and a misconception that African-Americans in particular are more genetically predisposed to a myriad of diseases of which hypertension happens to be one. Diabetes is another. Uh, development of heart disease and stroke uh, are others, and there are more. There are some genetic predispositions to disease, but the reality is that disease manifestation is largely driven by environmental and societal exposure, such as if there are continuous stressors in a person's life, the response of the cardiovascular system it may end up with the person having high blood pressure. But it doesn't mean that that person, if living in a different environment, shall we say a black person living in Africa, under a different socioeconomic and societal exposure, that person may actually have a normal blood pressure. So it goes way beyond the myth that black people are more predisposed to get hypertension. It's a much more complex equation than that. Right. And that I think is, is actually, Todd, the basis of your question, which is rather than deal with health equities, we first have to become aware, exposed to the concept of health inequities that our system creates. Our system is actually building into itself inequities that create a domino effect of illness and disease. And the challenge that we're going to face as a result of that, because we're not willing to actually mobilize, or perhaps we are hopefully, but we've got to mobilize around health equity because different populations have different needs at different times. And if we don't begin to recognize that and move actively toward that, and that includes, by the way, creating environments where people have access to healthier foods, creating an environment of better education of the system to make sure people have earlier access to care, understanding that certain populations, because of whether it's awareness or education or mindfulness or, or resources, are actually going to be at heightened risk for non-communicable diseases like heart disease, like diabetes, like respiratory disease, and other non-communicable illnesses what happens is unless we're prepared to look at the inequities, we're not going to be able to rally to the health equities. I think Dr. Oluka really nailed that spot on, which is we're all, all of us have genetic predisposition to something, right? It's in our genome and in our makeup, our family makeup. It's a question of what turns that switch on. Racism, quite bluntly, is a colossal switch on for disease. And that's what we need to begin to understand. Racism at its core is a public health risk. And you said that so well, Todd, what the CDC has announced. We have to understand that our society cannot become a sustainable society spending $3 trillion in healthcare a year as long as we turn our backs on racism. Dr. Aluko, you know, when you got out of high school, you began working as an administrative clerk at a, at a local news radio station um, many, many years ago. And what, what I want to know is why, what's changed since then? And why is this or is this a new conversation that we're having? You've certainly gone back in history and done some research. That's many years ago. <clears throat> And yes, uh, I did work um, as a clerk at, at a broadcasting company, and uh, that well, that predated my 
encounter with the health industry, although I'd always wanted to be a physician. And I'll just give a quick backdrop as to how I wanted to become a doctor. I happened to go to an emergency room once with my mother in Nigeria, my home country. And walking through the emergency room, saw a person die in front of me, uh, collapsed. And I saw the consternation around all of that. Uh, I saw the husband of the woman who passed away trying to get attention from medical staff that were all very busy. And it took a while for them to try to revive her and she died. Uh, I, I said to myself that day, I was 15 years old, that I was going to study medicine because I wouldn't want that to happen to any family member of mine. Very naive, but that's the truth. Now, um, a lot has changed since then. I became a fellow in interventional cardiology in Massachusetts uh, some years ago. And after six months of my fellowship program, during my fellowship program, it occurred to me that I had done a catheterization and angioplasty on one black man after six months in a blue collar town in Massachusetts. And I began to wonder how could that possibly be that I, as the most senior fellow, the only black cardiologist, wasn't getting to see a population that had a higher risk of dying from the ravages of heart disease. And that began my quest into trying to understand the issues of access, the issues of denied treatment or differential treatment. And fast forward now, I have been ever since my fellowship training, a student of racism in medicine and a student of health disparities. Now the conversation around health equity has morphed over generations because it did begin with racism in medicine. And we must acknowledge and understand that when we talk about racism in anything, certainly racism in medicine, it's a very difficult conversation for physicians and administrators to engage in and continue, or even sit down to develop strategy to objectively identify where the problems are and what the outcomes are. That's morphed a little bit from racism in medicine to health disparities. But health disparities have also generally had a racial connotation to it. And that has persisted in the uncomfortable conversations where health system administrators, physician leaders at large, feel they're being accused of being racist. Mm. And therefore the conversations are difficult to advance. Fast forward to, to till today, we have a more broader conversation about health equity. Health inequities relate to health disparities, but health equity is now an aspirational goal whereby all people are put in a position to achieve their maximum health potential. And it's a broader conversation in the context that it isn't just racial, but the racial component is driving it. It also speaks to women because women are part of this portfolio of vulnerable populations we speak about that are at risk for being exposed to health disparities and therefore will not achieve health equity. Women, whatever race, run the risk of being subjected to subliminal bias. Elderly patients similarly are part of this vulnerable population. Sexual orientation is another vulnerable population, as are the homeless, the disabled, children. So there's a large portfolio that represents health inequities, but there's no question about the fact that the racial disparities have gotten the most and appropriate focused attention uh, that has happened with COVID-19. Dr. Luca, I, I really, think that um, this segment of the discussion alone should be highlighted, what you've just shared. And, and, and regarding women and heart disease, having been involved in that effort at its genesis, the pre-difference, the pre-go-red-for-women type movement with the American Heart Association, I remember 
probably in about 1993, asking the question uh, and being chuckled at. The question I asked was, why is it that women die from their first heart attack and men don't? And everybody said, well, no, it's, again, must be structural. And I said, what happens if it weren't their first heart attack? What happens if they had presented previously for symptoms and were sent home? And sure enough, as we, we really did the data mining in about 1993, 1994, it was determined that many women actually presented at ERs and were sent home with, um, at that point, Valium. Uh, Valium and Pepto-Bismol, it was assumed that it was either anxiety or um, anxiety or perhaps you know, reflux. And on top of that, of course, we forget that um, each body has a different structure that was then cardiac stress test, you know, the, the standard thallium test didn't pick up enough specificity in a woman's heart with the isotope because of breast attenuation. And so the technology had to change because women were actually leaving the hospital with false negatives. Um, and so, you know, when we're taking a look at all of this, and, and you're championing at EY what you're doing today, it really requires um, a thoughtfulness um, from someone like yourself who's been in the system, who's looking at the system, who both understands patient care, is looking at this as a policy um, viewpoint as well. You know, uh, Todd, I would say we really need to take a look at policy. We need to take a look at innovation and how it's used to um, accelerate access to care for people. We need to take a look at the fact that you know, telehealth must remain here to stay. It makes health much more accessible to vulnerable populations. Uh, you know, we need to take a look at even where we build systems. You know, There's a whole movement now called um, the well certification movement, where we're not only looking at buildings from a, are they environmentally sound, but are they actually well oriented. In other words, in Camden, which is a place of great health urgency, it's one of the poorest cities in the United States in a metropolitan area, the hospital is actually inaccessible to the population. It's separated by a highway. Don't own a car and you can navigate around the highway to get to the hospital. What do you do? Take a bus? No, you don't go to the hospital. And so I, I think that We've got a lot of work to do, but you know, Dr. Luca, I'd be curious for your point of view. Um, you know, you talked about people feeling um, criticized, and I'm wondering if we need to say, "Look, we're not asking you to be defensive. We're not asking you to feel that you're at fault. We're asking you to develop a a culture of mindfulness, of awareness, of being prepared to enter into conversation." of what can we do better to create health equity as opposed to live with the status quo? I'd, I'd be curious your perspective on that. Great question. So I am convinced that there are few nobler professions than those within the health industry. All professions bring value to human society, but there are few professions that the professionals within that industry, like in medicine or healthcare, every single morning when they wake up and put on their clothes and leave their homes and get into their modes of transportation to their places of work, every single day they are making people feel better and live longer, day in, day out. That is unmeasurable long-term value to human society. I'm saying this to say that healthcare providers mean well. They generally mean to do good to their patients and their families, make people feel better, make them live longer. And when the inevitable happens to, to pass on with dignity, it's got to be dignity in death. So that being said, it becomes uncomfortable when providers that have that ethos begin to feel that they are accused, being accused of 
differential treatment of some of their patient populations. This is where acknowledgement of the problem is key. And America has witnessed in real time the ravages of COVID-19 across all segments of society. However, despite the noble, noble profession of medicine, it generally is the US media and investigative journalism that picks up on the sensational differences as we saw in COVID-19 in adverse outcomes. This is not generally being pushed forward by the industry itself. So there has been a lack of momentum to acknowledge the degree of the problem and then to mobilize towards solutioning. With COVID-19, we all saw that black and brown people were more likely to be exposed, probably less likely to understand the importance of preventive modalities to limit exposure. When they got exposed, delays in diagnosis, which speak to difficulties like you've just described, Gil, but access to healthcare. And when eventually they're forced to take that bus to bypass that highway, they get to the hospital with more advanced levels of disease. Late stage, more admissions to the hospital, much more sick black and brown people, and way more deaths. All of this playing out real time, 24 seven. The point I'm making is that this is the media. This is not my industry that is pushing this information out. This is nothing new. This is just the contemporary iteration of decades and generations of one and the same. What seems to be different now is the global societal groundswell and a convergence of societal will from within the industry and outside to say, this no longer makes sense. The issue that Gil speaks of are the social determinants of health and access to health literacy, access to educational opportunities, access to reasonable environmental living conditions. None of this is new. There have been books and volumes and papers and journals that have been written for the past 50 years about how the social determinants of health predispose minorities to more health risk. There's been reams of literature written, as Gil was alluding to, about the differential treatment within the bricks and mortar of health systems in physicians' offices and in hospitals between Caucasian women and Caucasian men when it comes to cardiovascular disease diagnosis and recommendations for treatment between Latinx people and Caucasian people, and of course, African-Americans. The literature is rife. We failed as an industry to be the advocates of our patients. Unknowingly, overtly, sometimes covertly, we have failed. So what I'm hoping now is that we will be able to understand that with the shift in demographics happening in the United States, the inevitable is happening whereby there will be a majority of black and brown people by the year 2050, and that if the health of humanity in the United States by and large, and the majority of people is subpar, then the health of all people will ultimately be subpar. Could I, could I pick up on that for a second, Dr. Aluko? Because I, I mean, the thought of 30 years to get to that place, a better place to me is, um, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. You know, 30 years, three, three decades uh, ahead. 
Um, and I, I just want to fast forward. You know, we are our 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 nation's economy, the global economy, is struggling right now, um, and and working toward a, a post COVID nineteen rebound. We're, we're dealing with large segments of our population who have been impacted economically by this pandemic, uh, and obviously we have heightened sensitivity about. Uh, the need to really mobilize around um, racial equality. Uh, CDC's comment about racism being a disease unto itself is is a call to action. I, I, I agree with everything you've said, by the way, everything. I, I, I'm just also saying that I think what's happened during this these past 14 months is is a is a realization in slow motion before our very eyes that the status quo of, of racial inequity is is unacceptable. Now, we've seen this from the, the murder of George Floyd, of the, the recent uh, police, um, the police action on the uh, lieutenant from the U.S. Army who's pulled over for a traffic violation that um, doesn't have any substance to it afterward. And we're seeing these things brought before our eyes because of social media. Everything is now um, transparent and available. And we're seeing decades upon decades upon decades of injustice um, before our eyes. And, and many of us are saying no more. Now, now let me swing over to the health side because now we're, we're pulling all of these individual puzzle pieces together. And we're saying no more on that end as well, coupled with the financial crunch that we're facing as, uh, as a nation, as a world. And you know, I mentioned earlier that we spend about $3 trillion a year in this nation alone on health the big bucket called health. Actually, when we look at a healthcare delivery or services to people, of the $3 trillion, I think it's about 45% of those money actually goes to providing people with healthcare. And obviously, 55% goes to other, um, other um, administrative services, government services, whatever, whatever. I think that we're, I'm hoping that we are starting to recognize that if we have a large swath of population in this nation that is impoverished due to um, health, that we as a nation will be impoverished soon enough. You know, it's not like these people are left to run into the emergency room to get their health needs tended to. Eventually state governments pick up that bill. If it's not covered under Medicare or Medicaid or private insurers, or affordable care, no open enrollment, it's covered somehow. It's covered by state and federal government. And I think that as a people, we're starting to realize um, either we're working toward justice in the health system or self-preservation, which is, gee, can we afford to let people just become sick? And if we're looking at people just becoming sick because we're not intervening and helping them, then either our self-interest is at risk or our human interest is at risk. I'm hoping that we'll come to the realization that both are at risk immediately and not have to wait 30 years to get to the place that you've mapped out. Yeah, um, a lot to unpack in what you just said. I'm gonna to touch on a couple of things, one of which is the economic burden of health disparities. You spoke about the, the healthcare spend in the United States. I looked at some recent numbers, more contemporary than what you said. It's about 3.7 spend, 3.7 trillion. The overhead is immense. You said what you said is true. What is also true is the degree of waste within the industry. Um, it's about 35% of waste. The annual implications from health disparities have been codified to be about 350 billion dollars on the US economy. We're talking serious numbers here. But more importantly and fundamentally, health disparities are occurring because of the industry's failure to eliminate care variation in practice in general and minority populations and other vulnerable populations get the brunt of that. But other populations also get that brunt, less drastically, but they get it. Fundamentally, we have failed as a system 
to hold providers, and by providers I refer to physician groups and hospital systems, accountable for being judicious and responsible custodians of health system resources and accountable for expected outcomes that are driven, outcomes that are driven by evidence-based medicine. With all your work with the American Heart Association and my practice in cardiovascular medicine, we both know that all our parent organizations, American College of Gynecology, Family Practice, you name it, we all have guidelines for clinical practice. It has been difficult for us to measure and to understand outliers and to provide insight as to how to, to, to rest in the right place under the bell curve. And because of that, the more marginalized people tend to get the brunt of variation in care. How do you explain if a black um, blue collar worker goes to an Ivy League university with complaints of chest pain with exertion and sweating and shortness of breath. And in the same Ivy League medical, medical institution, a Caucasian CEO of Fortune 100, universe, Fortune 100 company has verbatim complaints. How do you explain if the same provider gives different recommendations for treatment? So this is where subliminal bias comes in, which oftentimes is unconscious, but this is care variation. So absent of having processes that actually hold one accountable using data and analytic platforms, and this is the digital age we're in now, more empowered by integrated digital platforms, we actually are in a better position now to do what needs to be done. You know, you and EY are doing some incredible work on that end. And you've just touched on something that um, may be one of the key takeaways of this conversation that we're having today, which is mindfulness. The, uh, the ability to stop for a second and say, um, am I drawing from historic biases in, in, in my own thinking process, my own behavior? And that, that sense of... of um, of awareness has to be embedded within our system now. It, it's a question of medical schools, pharmacy schools, starting to actually train our next generation of health professionals, and even maybe requiring on the CME and CE level um, courses that take a look at um, mindful bias. It's not intentional. It's not meant to be destructive. But the outcome of the um, intuitive flow of conversation and decision-making actually diminishes quality of care for, for many people. And I, I think that, that you, I don't know if this is also a, a program that you're recommending, but I, I thought that your comment was so well intended. Within my own organization, I just went through a program that's required of all of our employees that is designed to create more um, mindfulness on how we communicate with each other and how we communicate around issues of race and gender and inclusion and diversity. And, and I have to say, as someone who really considers myself a very open person, um, just, the, just going through the program alone heightened my sensitivity of, of who I aspire to be as, as, a, as a health communications, health policy professional. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that our medical system, to the, to the best of my knowledge, has required programming in, you know, uh, in communicating with patients in general. I don't know if you take a semester course or if it's offered in pharmacy school or in medical school, we're going to really train you or sensitize you to deal with how do you deal with the consumer? Or how do you deal with people of color? How do you deal with people who have um, 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 gender identification um, challenge or issues or questions? We don't, we don't really bring that to the table, I think, in the healthcare profession. And therefore, we, we throw people out into the discipline 
and we say, be good healthcare professionals. Now, do you have any advice for us on that? Because you have clarity about the challenge. Um, do you have a, no pun intended, a prescription for our engaging in better health for people? Uh, so at EY, uh, we've taken a stand uh, on, and we've de developed a point of view on health equity. Um, and we are advancing this beyond the conversation to solutioning. To answer your question, yes. First of all, it takes an understanding of the broad ecosystem, very complex ecosystem, within which a person, a patient, a human being um, navigates from the day they're born to the day they enter the health, the bricks and mortars of the health system. And when they begin to navigate the very complex patient journey within the bricks and mortars. One has to understand that, first of all. We talked about the social determinants of health. Corporations have for decades been investing in community. But if the investments in community haven't moved the needle on health disparities, then that means the investments aren't strategic enough. So we provide insight in that philanthropic space about social impact investments that are measurable, designed to achieve certain goals. We have to understand that the social determinants of health space is a long game, but we, we have those competencies too. Now, you spoke about cultural sensitivity. Cultural sensitivity is critically important in healthcare, particularly when you're dealing with a diverse cultural patient base. We began talking about diversity and inclusion a couple of decades ago. Now we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Fundamentally, developing tools that empower you with the ability to pivot appropriately within different cultural nuances. It's not taught pervasively in medical schools. There's some attention happening now. It needs to be much broader. It needs to permeate the entire administrative and clinical workforce. Those conversations about diversity, culture, inclusion, cultural sensitivity are hardest to have within the clinician enterprise. Most DEI efforts sometimes don't even penetrate the C-suite. Sometimes they are simply check the box initiatives, but they're most impactful when it's owned, driven by the C-suite throughout the entire workforce. A lot of work needs to be done within the clinician workforce to improve cultural sensitivity. Not just, not, not just within Caucasian providers, but within African-American and Latinx providers as well, because we're all exposed to different racial consumer bases as of now. You know, Dr. Luca, I, you know, Todd um, and the Pharmacy Podcast Network often include resources in their programming, and I'm very hopeful that they will include the EY guidance in this area. I think that, that we're um, collectively looking for best practices. We're looking for expert direction that you've just mapped out, um, and I, I think that that would be an important resource to provide uh, listeners to the program today. You know, this is, this is a pressing, pressing public health issue. And I think anybody who in their heart cares about expert healthcare delivery really has to bring this issue um, to the forefront. And, you know, I think that that's some of the challenges we're facing. I, 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 I think you're right. I think that a lot of people at the C-suite level view this as a check the box issue. Um, you know, we've got to have an initiative here. And yet I think that at all levels, uh, leaders have to step forward and say, this is a fundamental issue. And, you know, again, I, I bring it beyond just health alone. Whenever we have um, a, a large segment of population that is uh, facing danger, whether it be health risk or economic risk or both in this case, um, we are setting ourselves up as a nation for impoverishment. Um, eventually, it catches up to all of us. And I, I think that if people think that, that we can um, somehow or another create islands within islands within islands in this nation, they are mistaken. They are mistaken that this is, um, this is a national 
priority issue. It has to be dealt with on the federal level, on the state level, on the county level. And certainly corporations like EY are, are in the forefront of elevating our awareness about this. Indeed so. Um, since this is a pharmacy podcast, one may want to understand how can the pharma industry um, mitigate this problem. And that's a very important question. Let me first of all just say that big pharma, which is drug manufacturers as distinct from retail pharmacy industry, both have large outsides, outsized roles and opportunities to play. And several are doing so already. I recently read a survey um, that showed that about a thousand corporate executives have signed a CEO action pledge to promote diversity and inclusion within their businesses. Uh, several farmer companies are already involved in DEI activities, but that's good for as long as the outputs over time are driving results. When it comes to retail pharmacies, re retail pharmacists have a very unique position in that a patient sees their pharmacist more often than they see their primary care physician, certainly their specialty physician. So pharmacists themselves need to be aware of this issue. They need to understand their constituents when they come to be part of vulnerable populations if they are, and to understand those vulnerabilities so that they can help educate and provide insights. In many, in many occasions, when I was a practicing physician, I would get a call from a pharmacist saying that, you know, we need to reconsider your, your, your prescription for this, this, this reason. So there is an integrated approach that pharmacists and doctors need to operate under. But for the context of this conversation, pharmacists have a very, very pivotal role to play as they see patients more than their doctors see them. Yeah, absolutely. I think you um, are uh, correct. And, and also, I think the anxiety level of speaking with a pharmacist is, is not as heightened as it is when that you speak to the physician. You know, when you go to the pharmacist, there is something where you trust their knowledge, you trust their ability to facilitate, but for some reason, you don't feel that they'll be the bearer of bad news. And so there's a there's an automatic comfort level that goes on. You know, it, it's not unusual for people who are concerned about drug to drug interaction or side effects or what should I do about this rash. Um, the the pharmacist historically has been the trusted go to source on that, and more often than not, the pharmacist is willing to advocate um, for the patient with with the plan. You know, the pharmacist is often the one that calls the doctor up about a formulary issue and, and they come together and unite around, you know, how will we get through the prior authorization or step through therapy issue? The, the pharmacist is the ambassador. You know, I'm, I, I also find um, that you're touching on something which we haven't discussed really, which is location. And, and we did allude to this in terms of where health facilities are located, but you know, pharmacy is a grassroots profession. It's all over the place in theory. And so, you know, if you look at the major chains or independent pharmacies, they're all over the place. And so the ability to find that confident, comfortable, trusted source of information is often down the street on your corner. Um, and I, I do think that pharmacists have to play a frontline uh, front role in helping us through this whole issue. I'd be curious from your perspective, maybe EY has guidance on this. Um, you know, uh, healthcare professionals like pharmacists, like nurses, are really the most accessible health professionals. When we're looking at racial equity, any, any counsel for all of us out there who are trying to deal with this? Uh, so we've developed a point of view that is customized to providers, it's customized to payers, different approaches, customized to the pharma industry and customized to medical devices. So we have spent a lot of intellectual resources in trying to understand how professionals within the stakeholder group can impact this problem. What you said is true. Access of care is a driver of inequity. 
And I believe the number is 90% of people in the United States live within eight miles of a pharmacy. So if we begin to marry that geographical footprint and using digital insight to understand communities that generally have gaps in access and be innovative in solution development, partnering with healthcare providers to make it easier for patients that can't come to them to be seen at different points of care, we're beginning to solution for the problem. But it does take a commitment to, first of all, understand that it's a problem and accept that it is a problem. Accept it and not blow it off like the issue of vaccine hesitancy is sometimes blown off and saying, you know what? Minorities are at increased risk of dying from COVID-19. We've got a vaccine. Oh, by the way, we hear that you don't want to get a vaccine. Get a grip, get the vaccine is what people say. There's a whole disconnect as to why the hesitancy exists. And it goes way beyond just Tuskegee. There are many, many, many Tuskegees. But there's also the logistical issue of taking time off to get the vaccine or the transportation to get the vaccine. Or if you go and get the vaccine, you don't get paid. So a willingness to understand the problem, accept it to be a problem, and then let's roll our sleeves up together, shoulder to shoulder, and let's solve for the problem. You know, this is, this is such a key point. This is where the disparities exist, where people who are doing certain jobs don't have the flexibility to take off, or they don't have transportation, um, or they don't have childcare, so that they can, if they do have time to get to the vaccination site, who will watch their children? This is the whole cascade of issues that actually create the great divide uh, among populations and, uh, and people from different jobs or, or um, economic wherewithal. And it just continues to contribute. And I, I, I also wonder, it's not so much, I think, solving the problem. It's to your point. It's beginning to just even acknowledge that we have a problem of disparities, that there are disparities built into the system, and that if the system wants to solve problems, and I'm not even talking about uh, racial equity, I'm even talking about just the basics of let's get us past COVID-19 and get the nation vaccinated, that we're, we're going to have to really come to grips with these inequities and address them and actually bring together um, policies and programs that actually say, let's start here as a model. Let's start with getting people who need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 vaccinated by creating systems of national vaccination days where people are guaranteed a wage, where they have access to free transportation or something in order to really get people on the right track and unite together for people's health. And, and that's why, you know, I think that these sort of conversations are, um, are more than aspirational. I find that they're very practical. People of influence listen, and hopefully enough people will come together that there'll be critical mass to change things. I think that's critical right now. I think you've mapped out in your last comments some very practical actions that are necessary through the awareness of, in fact, hey, some people can't take off work. Some people don't have childcare. Some people don't have transportation. Those are actually the easier problems to fix, but we need to engage. You couldn't have said it better. 100% agree with you. When I think of what's happening in the world with this pandemic, it reminds me that it impacts everyone. This COVID-19, this coronavirus impacts everyone. And so many of us in the beginning um, might not have taken it seriously. And now uh, 500,000, you know, plus people in the United States that we've, that we've lost, we realize, okay, this is very serious. I look at this issue 
Gill and Dr. Iluko the same way. We, we as a culture, you don't think it affects you, but it is affecting you. It's affecting the health of this nation. It's affecting the economy of this nation. If you were nothing but a, a cold-hearted capitalist, this is affecting you. This is affecting all of us. And I think what this podcast has taught me is I can't stand idle anymore as a white German Irish you know, 48-year-old man that's never felt racism. I've never been sexually harassed. I've never been called a gay homosexual man and some negative connotation. None of those things had affected me directly, but they affect the world that I live in. They affect the people that I love. They affect uh, my family. They affect my friends. They affect my colleagues. And this this is a virus that we must eradicate that we're experiencing right now. And this pandemic has taught me more about humanism and more about the prescription of what I call the prescription of love QD every day that we can't ignore it anymore. If it doesn't affect you, you don't realize it is affecting you. It's impacting this entire nation. And that's why it's been an absolute honor, Dr. Luco and, and Gil, to be sitting here listening to the two of you speak so eloquently and so define about what the next steps can be. And in closing, I want to hear from Dr. Luco, just giving our listeners something to think about for the rest of this year, this 2021. This is a year of recovery. This is a year of healing. What can you leave us, our listeners, with uh, Dr. Luca? So the, the realization that a virus that got unleashed in remote China uh, has paralyzed the entire world is very humbling. That's number one. Number two, there needs to be an understanding. This is not going to be the last one. We know what's happened with this one. So we have to get through this. And it looks like we are turning the curve and there is some light in the tunnel, but we have to keep our foot on the pedal. The goal is herd immunity, not just in the United States, but across the world. And for us to get to herd immunity, we have to develop a vaccine administration strategy that maximizes vaccine adoption. Up to 80% of people not counting into the fact that the variants may make it 85% or 90%. So the sooner we are able to embrace the enormity of what it's going to take to stop this, we'll be able to do it. Then we need to sit back as a public health system in the country, as a government in the country, as concerned citizens and businesses and community leaders to ensure that we as society are better prepared and resilient for the future. Well, that was absolutely greatly appreciated. I absolutely am so pleased that we got to share this with all of our listeners. These listeners are my most favorite providers. They're my heroes that are out there on the front lines. I want to give a, a shout out to every single pharmacist and pharmacy technician right now. I dedicate this episode to you. I dedicate this episode to, to all of our healthcare providers and understanding the virus that is the health disparity and racism of the, this nation and how it's all of our responsibility to eradicate it and being the, the, the prescription of love and the, and the, the antidote of love and, and reaching out to someone else who you know is going through something and, and we can't ignore it anymore. Gil, it's just an absolute honor to always have you here and the insights and your, your wisdom. I, I greatly appreciate you. Todd, I, I, I uh, thank you very much. And obviously sharing your dedication to the listeners, to the pharmacists on the front lines of patient care. I, I also really want to acknowledge Dr. Luco and EY for outstanding work. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those resources also. Dr. Luco was 
was beyond illuminating, really a, a national public health figure. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to have him on the show and I was able to be part of it. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Luco, thank you. We were on with Dr. Aluko with uh, EY, Ernst & Young. He's EY's America Chief Medical Officer. We were uh, greatly appreciated the, the co-hosting uh, from, from Gil Bash of, of Finn Partners. And as always, I thank you from the bottom of my heart listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. <laughs>